church family, if you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 7. And I'm going to give a little introduction by looking back to last week. We just started last week a series of messages on the book of Acts that's going to take us through the end of the year. And um, Luke plays a part in the book of Acts. See, Acts will be a multifaceted look at the church, both then and its application for us uh, now. And Acts is that second book in a two-volume work by Dr. Luke. And right in the middle of Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Luke wrote, In the first book, O Theophilus, Theophilus was the guy he wrote the books for, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And that first book is that Gospel of Luke. And today we're going to review an encounter and a conversation that happened at a dinner party. And I wish for you today that we, as we look at this story, that you would be like a fly on the wall watching what happens in the moments with Christ and the players in the story. Because in it, it gives us a very personal, even what I would say an intimate look at forgiveness, who needs it, and the nature of grateful love that flows out of it. And actually, it also will show you how you see your personal need for God's forgiveness. Now, remember that Luke wants Theophilus to understand some key things. He wants him to understand who Jesus was and what he did. So here we are on Mother's Day. That church in the book of Acts and the people today God is calling us to be, you and I must recognize what happens when we get up close to Jesus. Close enough to witness, to see, to hear what He does with all sorts of people, including you, what He will do with you as you draw near. But to understand a story that's 2,000 years old, written to and for a people of that day, it has a cultural and a historical setting which we must understand if we're going to get gripped by what actually occurred in the story. So I want to set, some, set the table for you, if you will. First off, a Near Eastern Jewish dinner in that day is not an American dinner party, folks. It's different. When you invite people to your house, it's probably a closed invitation. But a Jewish dinner party usually was an open setting inside a room. And people, when they saw people gathering going in who had been invited, hey, if you had nothing better to do or you were interested in the conversation, you could come on in. Have a seat along the wall. People watch and listen. And they did. Women were not unusually invited to dinner parties for this type of conversation to sit at the table. Jews, actually in that day, had also adopted Roman and Greek practice, which involved laying on their side next to usually a low-rung table that was in the middle, and their feet was stretched out behind the person in front of them. Now, who doesn't like to eat laying down? I mean, I don't know, laying on your side. 
But this is kind of what it looks like. I'll just give you a picture. So it's a little bit like that. So this is what a typical Jewish party in that day would look like. Now remember, the roads were quite dirty. And people were either barefoot or their sandals were open. There were no paved streets. So when you arrived at a home, normally a servant would be stationed near the entry to serve the guest by washing their feet. It was common courtesy. As well as, usually the host would be ready to greet where we would shake hands, they would greet with a kiss. As well as, many times, because of how dry it was, there would be oil for the skin. So it would be kind of like this, bringing it forward to modern day. Imagine being invited to someone's home in the middle of the winter time, and you arrive at the front door, and you ring the doorbell, and you hear some things going on behind the scenes. Nobody comes to the door. So you ring it again. And suddenly somebody comes to the door and they open. There's the host. And the host looks at you, who's invited you, and they look like at you a little bit like, uh, and they go, oh. And so you're just a little bit awkward here. And you walk in with your coat, because it's cold. And there's lots of, there's people around. So the host goes back to mingling, and you are standing there with your coat on. Everybody else's coat has been taken, and you with your coat on. You don't know what to do with your coat. No one's extended you the common courtesy of taking your coat. No one has shaked your hand. You go to the table, ready to eat, and you notice no place is set for you. Everybody else has a plate, and so you kind of stand there awkwardly, and the host goes, Oh, there's plates in the kitchen. Now, just think about that just for a moment. Bear witness as if you're in the story. Now, at best, it's a mistake. But the story is implying, actually, probably, Simon sees Jesus as beneath him. So he doesn't do the common courtesy. So we're going to pick up in verse 36 and following. Let's read in chapter 7 of Luke. Look down. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. Now a Pharisee, as you know, these were religious leaders. They were the elite. So he invites Jesus over. Simon might be likened to an elder of the Orthodox Religion Fundamental Fellowship. All right? And since Jesus is creating a stir and building a reputation, he thinks it's astute of him to have Jesus over to dinner to probe what kind of teacher prophet this Jesus actually is. So let's see what happens. Then in verse verse 36, And he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining in the Pharisee's home, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, 
If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, said, saying to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. All right. Like a fly on the wall, I hope you can see it. I hope you can envision the scene. But more importantly, this morning, I hope that you can see some important discoveries that happen in this moment not only about this woman's life, not only about Simon and Jesus and the crowd that's in the room, but actually about you. What happens when Jesus is in the room with you? So I want to show you several things. I want us to explore these important discoveries and make application to our individual's life today and the life of the church that we're going to be. Number one, here it is. Jesus... It may surprise you, but he is not surprised, embarrassed, or avoids you because of your sin. When women were not invited to dinner parties, especially a woman like this, and though her sin is not actually mentioned, her name is not mentioned, it is actually implied that she is an adulterer or a prostitute. The way we know this is this vial of perfume typically hung around a prostitute's neck. And it was small, and it was typically the most valuable thing they would have. And it would mark her as a woman that a a man who wanted a prostitute could approach. It was a way for her to do that. Because a woman did not speak to a man. And she comes. And all she can bring is herself. And all she can bring is her shame and her sin. And the only valuable possession that she probably had at the time, this costly vial of perfume that hangs around her neck. And as awkward as it is, it's interesting that as if you act as a fly on the wall and you're watching this scene, there is no indication of any kind that Jesus feels awkward. Jesus is not concerned about what others will think. It's it's as if these two are the only two in the room. 
And she does something that you may not know was almost scandalous. She does something that women would only do in private, something a woman could actually be divorced for. She takes down her hair, which women did not do in public. And since Jesus' feet had not been washed, she washes his feet with the tears of the brokenness that she possesses in her heart. And she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. Now let's, let's go easy on Simon. It's easy from the cheap seats to go, yeah, another one of those religious guys. But I'm going to tell you, folks, Simon actually, let's give him some credit. This would be awkward for just about anybody, but not Jesus. In fact, if you look at the story carefully, Jesus seems almost pleased that she comes. In fact, he's not phased at all. He seems to even enjoy the fact that she comes to him. So he's not surprised, he's not embarrassed or avoids you because of your sin. There's a second thing that Jesus sees when you come. He sees beyond your past, beyond what you or others judge you to be. See, the woman that we're seeing in this story, she likely had heard Jesus before. In fact, her name is not mentioned. And some people have said this is Mary, uh, 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 Mary Magdalene. No, she's not the, the person in Luke chapter 8. In fact, I would say there might be evidence that she is the woman of John chapter 8 that is caught in the act of adultery and drug out and thrown at Jesus' feet. And Jesus invited all that were watching that scene. He who was without sin began throwing stones. And as you know the story, he sends that woman home and tells her, go and sin no more. So wherever it was that she'd heard him, she shows up. She sees him going in the dinner party. She goes in. She takes her place around the wall. And see, we need to understand that we're like her. You and I are like her. When we began to gaze at our past, we in our present began to experience some things. Like the pain of regret. You know the pain of regret. That's that moment that you are saying to yourself, why did I do that? Why did I do that? If you've not done that yet, there's probably been many moments you should be saying that to yourself. Why did I do that? The pain of regret when you reflect on what you have done. Or the guilt of lost opportunity. The what-ifs of life. What if I'd have made bit different decisions, better decisions? What if I would have chosen better? The what-ifs could haunt her and do haunt us. Or maybe it's just that general malaise of guilt that moms sometimes have worse than anybody else. You know the mom guilt? Not the ones that she heaps on you, 
This is the stuff that she carries around all the time. Now, Dad's got it too, but moms especially seem to have this. It's that guilt of, you know, wow, I should have done this better. I'm not that great mom. I'm not an Instagram mom. I have no worthy posts, you know, nothing like that. Or the shame of the mistakes of her past, the real ones. Like my daughter, Emily, who told me the story this yesterday. This is just an add-on. My daughter, Emily, a year ago today was just about to give birth, our first grandchild. So you're pregnant, you're already a mom, okay? The night before Mother's Day, my daughter and my son-in-law, Ted, had arrived at somebody else's house in two separate cars. At the end of the evening, Emily's exhausted. Hormones are crazy. She wants to just go home and go to bed. So they drive one home car home, leave the other car at the other people's house. Emily had forgotten that Ted plays music on Mother's Day at their church. So he's up bright and early, out the door, leaving Emily in bed. Emily wakes up. Ted's gone, realizes No car to get to church. She can't be with my wife, Amy. She can't be at church. And so like any mother with any sanity begins to cry, all right? (laughs) And she said, I just, emotions were wild. And then Ted, who normally would be home by 1230, doesn't show home until 2 p.m. Now, you would think that Emily is sitting on the couch with her little hands folded, just very happy. But as he comes into the house, immediately she grabs him and says, Where have you been? I could have gone into labor. Ted, like most men of any savvy, just stands there with his mouth hanging open, right? And he says, oh, sorry, honey. There was a man outside of church who had a need, and I took him to lunch and took him home. And so you can imagine, what did Emily feel then? Did she feel better about herself? <laughs> How about you, Mom? How much false guilt do you carry thinking if you would have just, if you just could. See, Jesus, when he's on the scene with you, he looks beyond your past, beyond what you or others judge you to be. But see, this woman, this woman sees her need for what only Christ can adequately provide. And that is mercy and forgiveness. And while everyone else could not see who Jesus was. She could accurately assess who he was actually. How is that? How did this woman accurately assess Jesus? Now here is the interesting thing. And it runs counter to how we typically think. We think the astute would see who Jesus is. But actually what opens her eyes and can open your eyes is her sin. Her sin opens her eyes. And Jesus welcomes the sinner. In fact, in the previous chapter, Jesus is criticized for eating with sinners. But the book of John tells us 
God did not send his own son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world may be saved through him. That's why he came. So yes, we know that sin will blind us. But God uses it nevertheless to open our eyes of our need for him. That's what he does. And here comes the irony of the gospel. When you and I recognize our sin, when you own it, when you say, I am the sinner, it can break you. And when it breaks you, it compels you to come to God. And Christ then becomes more than someone you acknowledge. He becomes the very hope of something new. You forgiven and released from your guilt. That's what he does. See, you, you and I at our end, that is the beginning of hope. That's where it is. But we always know that at the same time, it's not just you and Jesus. There's others in the room, right? There's others in the room. And Jesus knows this well. He knows that others see you. But this is why Jesus tells a parable to Simon. Down in verse 41 and following. But see, we also know that how others see us can impact us. And the reality is that when others see us, they may accurately, to a degree, see us the way we are and what we've been. Sometimes they are right. And when, they are, when they're right or whether they're right or wrong, we know what it's like to experience rejection. You know what it's like to experience rejection. I don't know about you. We talk about living our lives over. I don't want to go back to middle school, folks. That was painful. Kids can be cruel. So we know what it's like to be rejected. And Simon, in this scene, you know what Simon could see? Simon could only see this woman's past. He could only see what he understood. A product of dead, dead legalism and comparison. That's what Simon does. But Jesus sees where this woman is right now, and he also sees her future. And Jesus points you, points her, points us, points us away from being paralyzed by our past. It's what he does. One of the great temptations for us as believers is to remain stuck in our past. We agonize over the regrets of the past and the fear of the future. But Jesus, he is approachable. And Jesus, he knows you. And he welcomes you near so that you can experience grace right here. Yes, right today, here. And for your future, just like this woman. That's what Jesus does. So, even though others see you, and even though others are on the scene, Jesus invites you to look beyond appearances. So Jesus doesn't just show the woman. There is somebody else to show. People like you. That you and I 
are compelled as the church to quit looking at appearances. That's what Simon needed. He needed to see that he too needed forgiveness. See, Jesus invites you to look beyond appearances to see that you too need it. You need forgiveness. So when Jesus says in verse 40, I want you to look down right there. In verse 40, Jesus answering said to him. Now here is another indication. I want you to see the story accurately. The details of God's word are phenomenal. Because we have a story here where Simon sees this woman... He knows what kind of woman she is. And then in verse 39, it says that he saw this, he said to himself. So he's not talking out loud. He's thinking, right? He's not saying this out loud. But guess who sees what he is thinking? So Jesus answers him in verse 40 and following. And Jesus answering him said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, folks, I want to tell you something. Whenever you see Jesus say something like this, it's a uh uh-oh moment. All right? It's hang on. We're about to witness exploratory heart surgery. So Simon hears the story that Jesus tells about these two debtors and both are forgiven and one has a tremendously greater debt than the other and Jesus asked him, Simon, what do you think? Who's going to love him more? Now this interesting word, this word for love here, the Jews did not have a word like we would say just grateful love. That's what it's talking about. But they didn't have words for this grateful love. So that's why he uses the word love. It's not romantic love. This is, oh my goodness, what you have done for me. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So who's going to love him more? Simon answers correctly. The person who has been been forgiven the most, who, who understands it, he's going to love the most. So he answers it correctly. Now look at verse 44 with me. It's interesting. There's a detail here that's obviously recorded as Luke interviews an eyewitness. He talked to Simon, and in verse 44 it says, Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. So just picture it with me. He talks to Simon. And then here is this broken woman. Jesus looks back at the woman. But he says to Simon, Simon, do you see this woman? How about you? Do you see people the way Jesus sees them. Or unbeknownst to you, are you like Simon? You gauge people 
by what they bring to their room. Their failure, their weakness, their past. The church that we're going to be will be identified by what we do with people who are broken in our midst. Make no mistake about it. Make no mistake about it. Jesus invites you to see what's right in front of you. Jesus looked at her, speaks to Simon. So we see here, this, see this parable that he tells? It does not deal with the amount of sin in a person's life, but the awareness of that sin in their heart. How much sin must a person commit to be a sinner? Simon and the woman both are sinners. Simon was guilty of the sins of the Spirit, especially pride, while the woman was guilty of the sins of the flesh, which Paul talks about both of these things in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, where he said, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit. Both of those things are going on in our lives. Her sins were known, according to Warren Wearsby. Her sins were known, while Simon's sins were hidden to everyone except God. And both of them were bankrupt. Neither could pay the debt to God. Simon was just as spiritually bankrupt as this woman. He just did not realize it. See, there's good news and there's some bad news for those who have not committed billboard sins. Now, what do I mean by billboard sins? I think it's Citibank right now has this ad out. You can see it on television. So if you use your credit card in a nonconformist way, it's like you're walking down the street and suddenly on the billboard, the question, did you make this purchase? Now, can you imagine you driving down the highway and all the things that you have thought in your heart or done in private, suddenly everybody there to see, just driving past. There it is, billboard. You may not know this, but there are some people who both commit billboard sins that everybody knows about, and then there are those, they just, they've not done that. They've not done those kind of things. They've not brought shame to themselves or to their family. They're not haunted by the pain of their past or tortured now by any addictive behavior. So there's good news for the upstanding citizen and the overall pretty good guy. Here's the good news. You're actually worse than you think. But Jesus is better. He's better than all the good. He's better than all the bad. Or all the blindness that you possess. But there's also bad news. The bad news for whomever you may be is that you may not clearly see your need. So when you see or hear other people, maybe this is you. You see or hear other people get excited about God. Or giving thanks to God. Or... or Praising God. It's real. It's like, uh, and you, get a, you don't know what to do with that. You're just not quite sure about that. 
And the reason why this is challenging for you, could it be actually is because you kind of have it together. You see yourself as kind of a self-made person. Simon on the surface has it together. But what he does not have is an accurate view of himself. He is self-righteous. His standards are centered in rule-keeping, a status in culture, and rationalizing by him comparing to others. But sin, sin is not just about wrong behavior. It's, it's like saying, I'm okay. This is my life. And as long as I live in a way that does not hurt other people, I'm doing fine. Now, now sure, Jesus can be invited over for a chat, have him over a dinner party or hors d'oeuvres, maybe to watch the game occasionally. But personal life change is beyond a Sunday morning fix. And you kind of see it as something that you don't actually need because life for you is pretty straightforward and you don't hurt people. You take care of you. See, self-righteous people, let's talk about what it actually looks like. Self-righteous people don't regularly go around saying, I'm better. Did you know that? That's the delusional that do that, okay? Right? What self-righteous people do is they spend their time thinking that. It's up here. And they don't always just say, I'm better. What they think is, I don't have a need. They don't need a savior. They want a janitor to take out the trash when the things are dirty or a genie to grant them their wishes. What keeps people away from God is not their failures, but it's actually their successes that keep them away. Because life seems okay to them. Do you know that this passage actually reveals that that attitude is costly, potentially, eternally costly. So number four, things that we've got to see. We need to understand that forgiveness of sin and peace for your future is yours by faith in Him. Jesus does for this woman what no one else can do. Forgive her and send her on, a way, on her way with a peace that she did not have before encountering him like this. Who is this Jesus? It's the same question in that room as it is in this room. It's the same question that hangs in the air at that dinner party. Who can forgive sin? That's what they're saying at the end of this story. Who is this that even forgives sins? And Luke wants you to know. He wanted Theophilus to know. He wants you to know. Only one can ultimately forgive sin. And it's God. And Jesus in this moment is showing his identity. 
He is God, and He is the God that gets up close and personal with the sinner, no matter what they bring to the room, and He forgives them, and He sets them free. That's what He does. This is not the only time Jesus says to a woman, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. He does it with a woman, even in the next chapter, who believed, all I've got to do, all I've got to do is just get close enough to reach out and touch his garment. It's all I've got to do is be able to reach out and touch his garment, which she does, and it made her whole. And that's what he does. He makes us whole. Get close to Jesus, you get whole. And he'll send you back into life, away from your past. In fact, Jesus does not say, hey, pull up a a chair to the table. Jesus sends her back out into her life in peace. Now, she goes back out. Let's be honest, with the very thing, freed from the very thing that had identified her previously. This little vial, as I said, had identified her probably. She empties it at his feet. She brings all that she is to his feet. And make no mistake about it, Jesus invites you to bring all that you are and lay it down at his feet. By grace you've been saved through faith. The book of Ephesians tells us. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. See, the gift of pardon, of right standing, and forgiveness is available right now. It was not her tears. It was not her hair that made her right. It was not the sacrifice of that vial. It was her faith that he could do what only he could do that set her free. Christ does the same thing for us. When you bring your sin and shame, Christ knows shame. And the Bible tells us that he despised it. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 tells us, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, Endured the cross, and then it's this, despising the shame. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that was before him. Do you know what that joy involves? His ultimate victory over the grave, but it also involves you in right standing with God. And even though you carry your shame, he takes it. And the Bible says he despised it. You know what that means? It means that he looked at it and he considered his shame that he experienced not worthy to compare. He just put it down. He just put it down. Because you are valuable to him. In closing... We're going to be in Acts for months. It's going to give us some insight about the early church. But it also should show us some things about us. Both Luke and Acts point us to Christ and his work. And the work that his followers will do. 
And the question that we have this morning is, what kind of followers will we be? What kind of hope will we offer? Will Grace Fellowship come across as a place with people? People who will say to others, okay, you straighten up, you clean up your act, we're watching you, you'll be welcome. Or possibly, will we be tempted to be more like Simon than we care to admit? Do we actually have low-level self-righteousness that's constantly flying under the radar? We don't see the mercy of Jesus. We don't give it to others. And see, to the extent that you cannot see how merciful God has been to you, you will not be merciful to others. People who have to kind of prove it to you, they're messy and broken. Sometimes you don't get it. And we might be blind to how messy and broken you actually are. You might be blind to it. I might be blind to it. We don't see it. We don't smell it. It's kind of like that, you know. Self-righteousness is a whole lot like bad breath. Everybody else around you can smell it, but you can't. But it's all over you. There's one path for those of us who have known the mercy of God. And that is to give the mercy of God to others. And the church that turns the culture upside down for the glory of God will be rushing toward people who are broken and inviting them near to experience what only God can give, forgiveness that he's ready to give you right here today. Let's pray. Lord, may you grant what we need, eyes to see our own sin. For the person sitting here today who needed to hear that they can come to you with their sin, with their brokenness, with their shame, with their fear, with all the mistakes of their past, the guilt that they carry. Oh God, draw them near. Jesus, show them your great love. Show them that you are ready to forgive them and send them out in peace. And for us, the church, good Father, we are still weak. What kind of people will we be? May you make us, your people, clothed with the gospel, ready to bind up others' wounds, to know that your arm is never too short to reach others. Will you do that in our lives today? For your glory and our good, in Christ's name.